New Preface from the Author I didn't set out to write a book. I'd begun therapy to work on issues in my marriage. I couldn't figure out why being such a nice guy didn't make my wife happy or make her want to have more sex with me. No matter how hard I tried to please her, keep the peace, avoid conflict, and hide my needs, she was still frequently moody, angry, critical, and sexually unavailable. My number one goal of therapy was to find out why being a nice guy didn't make my wife treat me better. Thankfully, my early recovery process took me in the healthier direction of learning how to be honest and transparent, set boundaries, live with integrity, love myself, make my needs a priority, express my wants, embrace my passion, and connect with men. Along the way, I began to notice that a number of the men who came to me for therapy were saying many of the same things I had thought or said. Why is she angry all the time? It's never enough. All I want is to be appreciated. Why doesn't she want to have sex anymore? When is it going to be my turn? I thought, hmm, I can finish these guys' sentences for them. They are just like me. I'm not the only guy who thinks that being nice should make people love him, like him, and treat him well. So I started a bi-monthly No More Mr. Nice Guy group for a handful of my clients. Every other week I would write a lesson for these men that detailed what I was learning from my exploration of my own nice guy issues. I kept writing, and over time the guys, and often their wives and girlfriends, began to tell me, You should write a book. You should go on Oprah. Well, I never made it onto Oprah, but I did end up writing a book. It took me around six years to write No More Mr. Nice Guy. I was not only learning about the nice guy syndrome, but also doing my own work and learning how to write all at the same time. It took another three years to find an agent and secure a publisher. Countless publishing companies turned down No More Mr. Nice Guy, all for the same reason. Their marketing department said men wouldn't buy a self-help book especially a book that told them they were losers. They all missed the point. The men I wrote about were not only not losers, they were highly motivated to become the best men they could be. Thus, they bought books. Fortunately, Nat Sobel, an experienced New York literary agent, believed in No More Mr. Nice Guy. He found the book a publisher, Barnes & Noble, which was launching an e-book publishing venture. Thanks to a lot of hustle and some very good luck. Funny how the harder I work, the luckier I get. The media picked up on the whole nice guy thing, and I enjoyed my 15 minutes of fame. Barnes & Noble also noticed and partnered with Running Press to publish a print edition of the book in 2003. Now, almost 15 years later, sales of No More Mr. Nice Guy continues to increase every year. The book has been translated into over a dozen languages. So much for men not buying self-help books. This reprint offers a good opportunity to share a brief progress report about my personal and professional journey over the 15 years since the original print edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy came out. I've said many times, No More Mr. Nice Guy is autobiographical. I just use other guys' stories to tell my own. I've also frequently said, this book is not a collection of my successes. It is a chronicle of my mistakes.
I didn't write No More Mr. Nice Guy as some academic sitting in my study researching the topic of nice guys. This book is about my life and the lives of countless nice guys with whom I've worked over a significant part of my career. I was a poster child nice guy and am now a recovering nice guy. I will be until the day I die. At times, like most nice guys, I'm a slow learner and a quick forgetter. Men seem attracted to No More Mr. Nice Guy because it is authentic and honest. I've received thousands of emails from men over the years asking me how I could know them so well. They tell me how the book has changed their lives and given them direction and hope. It feels good to know that telling the story of my struggles and what I've learned from them has helped so many men and women around the world. When I finished writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, I had a strong suspicion that I wasn't done with my own journey of discovery and recovery, but I didn't know how right that premonition was. I was married to my second wife, Elizabeth, when I started working on my nice guy issues and when I wrote the book. She was the big stick upside the head that wouldn't let me wiggle out of addressing my dysfunctional nice guy tendencies. I had to go all in and find a different roadmap for life. Being a nice guy just wasn't getting it done. I will be forever grateful for the force of nature that was Elizabeth in getting me started on my journey. But even as I finished writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, I knew I wouldn't always need that constant whack upside the head to keep me moving forward. Elizabeth and I separated about six months before the print edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy came out. I had no way of knowing it at the time, but my life was about to head down a very different road with unseen adventures and a multitude of new growth experiences. I'll keep the story of my last 15 years short. I went on my book tour, got divorced, had to learn to live alone for the first time in my adult life, struggled with some depression, frequently felt lost, learned to date in my late 40s, met a lot of great women, had a lot of sex, and couldn't figure out on what planet I had landed after a 14-year marriage with virtually no sex. Traveled, promoted my book, moved and rebuilt my counseling practice, learned to salsa, worked with thousands more nice guys in groups, seminars, online courses, and consultations, started an online university, became a dating coach for men, about which, if you had asked me when I was writing No More Mr. Nice Guy, whether I would ever teach men to date, I would have answered, no way in hell. Reinvented my business so I could live in Mexico or anywhere. Built a new website, recorded hundreds of podcasts on every aspect of nice guy syndrome recovery. Had some great relationships, made some more mistakes, bought a home in Mexico, got married again, became a parent again, am getting better at speaking Spanish having discovered that marrying a woman who doesn't speak English will do that. Signed a contract with Warner Brothers for a television show based on No More Mr. Nice Guy in development as I write this. I'm working on two more books and I'm currently transforming my personal and professional life into being a full-time writer and speaker. Phew. Personally, I couldn't have predicted 15 years ago that I would be sitting where I am today. Throughout the years since, my ongoing mantra has been, I love waking up in the morning not knowing how my day is going to end. 
I have discovered that when people let go of the inaccurate roadmaps they developed in childhood and begin searching for more helpful life paradigms, they open the door for an amazing adventure. I also have continued to learn more about myself and about Nice Guys. If I were to add a new chapter to No More Mr. Nice Guy, it would be about the effect of anxiety on Nice Guys. In the book, I stress the influence of toxic shame, but now see that the Nice Guy Syndrome is probably as much about managing anxiety as about managing shame. Learning to self-soothe is every bit as important as learning to release toxic shame. I say in the book, don't try to do this alone, and still believe this as much as ever. This advice will never change. We need the help of safe people to do our work of recovering from the nice guy syndrome. Fortunately, today the Internet, a plethora of books, websites, blogs, forums, programs, retreats, mastermind groups, and coaches focus on helping men do this work. And I'm humbled and gratified to hear how many of these resources recommend my book. When I began my recovery process, about all I had to guide me were 12-step groups and the mythopoetic men's movement led by people like Robert Bly and Michael Mead. Ho! Oh. Perhaps you are just beginning your adventure by picking up this edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy. Perhaps you have already begun your journey through 12-step recovery, therapy, or coaching, and you've been recommended this book. Perhaps you've lent your copy of the original edition to a friend or it is so filled with yellow highlighter that you've decided to pick up the new copy. Wherever you are on your journey, thank you for joining me now. We're going to have a good time. When I reread my own book in preparation for this new printing, something I had written in the first chapter grabbed my attention. Being integrated means being able to accept all aspects of oneself. An integrated man is able to embrace everything that makes him unique his power, his assertiveness, his courage, and his passion, as well as his imperfections, his mistakes, and his dark side. One thing that has become clearer to me since I finished writing No More Mr. Nice Guy almost 20 years ago is this. Recovery from the Nice Guy Syndrome is not about becoming a better man or getting rid of anything. Nice guys have been trying to do both since childhood. Recovery is about becoming more you. You don't have to become a better you to be liked, to be loved, get your needs met, or have a good life. You just have to be you. It is actually all the things that you've tried to become or tried to eliminate or hide about you that have gotten in your way all of these years. My profound wish is that this book will help you rediscover, accept, embrace, love, and be you. I don't know where my life will take me over the next 15 years. I like that. Perhaps I'll be writing another preface for another edition of No More Mr. Nice Guy. And I hope I'll have more changes and discoveries and adventures to write about. More importantly, I hope this book opens the door for a lifetime of discoveries and adventures as you move in the direction of becoming more you. Have an adventure. Be you. Robert Glover, July 2017, Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Introduction 
Five decades of dramatic social change and monumental shifts in the traditional family have created a breed of men who have been conditioned to seek the approval of others. These men are called nice guys. Nice guys are concerned about looking good and doing it right. They are happiest when they are making others happy. Nice guys avoid conflict like the plague, and will go to great lengths to avoid upsetting anyone. In general, nice guys are peaceful and generous. Nice guys are especially concerned about pleasing women and about being different from other men. In a nutshell, nice guys believe that if they are good, giving, and caring, they will in return be happy, loved, and fulfilled. Sound too good to be true? It is. Over the last several years, I've encountered countless frustrated and resentful nice guys in my practice as a psychotherapist. These men struggle in vain to experience the happiness they so desperately crave and believe they deserve. This frustration is due to the fact that nice guys have believed a myth. This myth is the essence of the nice guy syndrome. The nice guy syndrome represents a belief that if nice guys are good, they will be loved. Get their needs met and live a problem-free life. When the strategy fails to produce the desired results, as it often does, nice guys usually just try harder, doing more of the same. Due to the sense of helplessness and resentment this pattern inevitably produces, nice guys are often anything but nice. My exploration of the nice guy syndrome grew out of my own frustration of trying to do it right. Yet never getting back what I believed I deserved, I was the typical sensitive new age guy and proud of it. I believed I was one of the nicest guys you would ever meet. Yet I wasn't happy. As I began exploring my own nice guy behaviors, caretaking, giving to get, fixing, keeping the peace, avoiding conflict, seeking approval, hiding mistakes. I started noticing numerous men with similar traits in my counseling practice. It dawned on me that the script guiding my own life was not an isolated incident, but the product of a social dynamic that affected countless adult males. Up until now, very few professionals have taken the problem of the nice guy syndrome seriously or offered an effective, comprehensive solution. The earliest reference I have found by a mental health professional to the nice guy syndrome is in a tape recorded in 1985 by Neil Scott, LMSW ACP. The tape is entitled "The Nice Guy and Why He Always Fails with Women." See suggested resources for recovering nice guys at the end of the book. Most other references to nice guys or the nice guy syndrome address the issue in a humorous manner. Or from the place of nice guys being helpless victims, this is why I wrote "No More Mr. Nice Guy." This book shows nice guys how to stop seeking approval and start getting what they want in love, sex, and life. The information presented in "No More Mr. Nice Guy" represents a proven plan to help men break free from the ineffective patterns of the nice guy syndrome. It is based on my own experience of recovery. And my work with countless nice guys over the last twenty years. No more, Mr. Nice Guy is unashamedly pro-male. Nevertheless, countless women have supported the writing of this book. Women who read the book regularly tell me that it not only helps them better understand their nice guy partner, it also helps them gain new insights about themselves.
the information and tools presented in No More Mr. Nice Guy work. If you are a frustrated nice guy, the principles presented in the following pages will change your life. You will learn effective ways to get your needs met, begin to feel more powerful and confident, create the kind of intimate relationships you really want, learn to express your feelings and emotions, have a fulfilling and exciting sex life, embrace your masculinity and build meaningful relationships with men, live up to your potential and become truly creative and productive, accept yourself just as you are. If the above traits sound good to you, your journey of breaking free from the nice guy syndrome has just begun. It is time to stop seeking approval and start getting what you want in love, sex, and life. Chapter 1. The Nice Guy Syndrome I'm a nice guy. I'm one of the nicest guys you're ever going to meet. Jason, a chiropractor in his mid-30s, began his first session of individual therapy with this introduction. Jason described his life as perfect, except for one major problem, his sex life. It had been several months since he and his wife Heather had been sexual, and it didn't look like anything was going to change soon. Jason spoke openly about his marriage, his family, and his sexuality. An affable man, he seemed to welcome the opportunity to talk about himself and his life. More than anything, Jason wanted to be liked. He saw himself as a very generous, giving person. He prided himself on not having many ups and downs and for never losing his temper. He revealed that he liked to make people happy and that he hated conflict. To avoid rocking the boat with his wife, he tended to hold back his feelings and tried to do everything right. After this introduction, Jason took a piece of paper out of his pocket and began to unfold it. While doing so, he stated that he had written a few things down so he wouldn't forget them. I can never do it right, Jason began, looking over his list. No matter how hard I try, Heather always finds something wrong. I don't deserve to be treated this way. I try to be a good husband and father, but it's never good enough. Jason paused as he looked over his list. This morning is a good example, he continued. While Heather was getting ready for work, I got our baby Chelsea up, fed her breakfast, and gave her a bath. I had her all ready to go and was about to get ready myself. Then Heather walked in and got that look on her face. I knew I was in trouble. Why'd you dress her in that? That's a good outfit. Jason mimicked his wife's tone. I didn't know she wanted Chelsea to wear something different. After everything I did to get her ready this morning, it was still wrong. Here's another example, Jason continued. The other day, I cleaned the kitchen and did a real good job. I loaded the dishwasher, did the pots and pans, and swept the floor. I thought Heather would really appreciate all that I was doing to help out. Before I was finished, she walked in and asked, How come you didn't wipe off the counters? I wasn't even done, for goodness sake. But instead of noticing all that I had done and thanking me, she focused on the one thing I hadn't finished yet. Then there is the sex thing, Jason said. 
We only messed around a few times before we got married because we're both Christians. Sex is real important to me, but Heather just isn't interested. I thought once you got married, everything was supposed to be great. After all I do for Heather, you'd think she'd be willing to give me the one thing I really want. It seems like I'm always giving so much more than I get. Now, looking like a little boy on the couch, Jason pleaded, All I want is to be loved and appreciated. Is that too much to ask? Some of the nicest guys you will ever meet. Men like Jason walk into my office on a surprisingly regular basis. These guys come in all shapes and sizes, yet they all have the same basic worldview. Let me introduce you to a few more. Omar Omar's number one goal in life is to please his girlfriend. Nevertheless, she complains that he is never emotionally available for her. In fact, every one of his previous girlfriends has had the same complaint. Since Omar sees himself as such a giver, he can't understand these accusations. Omar states that his greatest joy in life is making other people happy. He even carries a pager so his friends can get in touch with him if they need anything. Todd Todd prides himself on treating women with honesty and respect. He believes these traits set him apart from other men and should attract women to him. Though he has many female friends, he rarely dates. The women he knows tell him what a great listener he is and often call him to share their problems. He likes feeling needed. These female friends constantly tell him what a great catch he will make for some lucky woman. In spite of the way he treats women, he can't understand why they all seem to be attracted to jerks rather than to nice guys like him. Bill Bill is the person to whom everyone turns when they need something. The word no just isn't in his vocabulary. He fixes cars for women at his church. He coaches his son's Little League baseball team. His buddies call on him when they need help moving. He looks after his widowed mother every evening after work. Even though it makes him feel good to give to others, he never seems to get as much as he gives. Gary Gary's wife has frequent rage attacks in which she verbally shames and demeans him. Because he is afraid of conflict and doesn't want to rock the boat, Gary will avoid bringing up subjects that he knows might make his wife angry. After a fight, he is always the first one to apologize. He cannot recall his wife ever saying she was sorry for any of her behaviors. In spite of the constant conflict, Gary says he loves his wife and would do anything to please her. Rick Rick, a gay man in his early 40s, is in a committed relationship with an alcoholic. Rick came to counseling to help his partner, Jay, with his drinking problem. Rick complains that it always feels as if it is up to him to hold everything together. His hope is that if he can help Jay get sober, he will finally have the kind of relationship he has always wanted. Lyle Lyle, a devout Christian, tries to do everything right. He teaches Sunday school and is an elder in his church. 
Nevertheless, he has struggled since adolescence with an addiction to pornography. Lyle masturbates compulsively, often three to four times a day. He spends hours every day looking at sexually explicit websites on the Internet. He is terrified that if anyone ever finds out the truth about his sexual compulsions, his life will be destroyed. He tries to control his problem with prayer and Bible study, although neither of these approaches has done much good. Jose Jose, a business consultant in his late 30s, has spent the last five years in a relationship with a woman he considers needy and dependent. Jose began thinking about breaking up the day she first moved in. He is afraid that his girlfriend wouldn't be able to make it on her own if he left her. Although he has made several aborted attempts to break up, his girlfriend always becomes such an emotional basket case that he gets back together with her. Jose spends just about every waking moment trying to figure out how to get out of the relationship without hurting his girlfriend or looking like a jerk. Who are these men? Though all of these men are unique, each shares a common life script. They all believe that if they are good and do everything right, they will be loved, get their needs met, and have a problem-free life. This attempt to be good typically involves trying to eliminate or hide certain things about themselves, their mistakes, needs, emotions, and become what they believe others want them to be, generous, helpful, peaceful, etc. I call these men nice guys. Up to now, we haven't paid much attention to the nice guy, but he is everywhere. He is the relative who lets his wife run the show. He is the buddy who will do anything for anybody, but whose own life seems to be in shambles. He is the guy who frustrates his wife or girlfriend because he is so afraid of conflict that nothing ever gets resolved. He is the boss who tells one person what they want to hear, then reverses himself to please someone else. He is the man who lets people walk all over him because he doesn't want to rock the boat. He is the dependable guy at church or the club who will never say no and would never tell anyone if they were imposing on him. He is the man whose life seems so under control until, boom, one day he does something to destroy it all. Characteristics of Nice Guys Every nice guy is unique, but all have a cluster of similar characteristics. These traits are the result of a script often formed in childhood, that guides their lives. While other men may have one or two of these traits, nice guys seem to possess a significant number. Nice guys are givers. Nice guys frequently state that it makes them feel good to give to others. These men believe their generosity is a sign of how good they are and will make other people love and appreciate them. Nice guys fix and caretake. If a person has a problem, has a need, is angry, depressed, or sad, nice guys will frequently attempt to solve or fix the situation, usually without being asked. Nice guys seek approval from others. A universal trait of the nice guy syndrome is the seeking of validation from others. Everything a nice guy does or says is at some level calculated to gain someone's approval or avoid disapproval. This is especially true in their relationships with women.
Nice guys avoid conflict. Nice guys seek to keep their world smooth. To do this, they avoid doing things that might rock the boat or upset anyone. Nice guys believe they must hide their perceived flaws and mistakes. These men are afraid that others will get mad at them, shame them, or leave them if some mistake or shortcoming is exposed. Nice guys seek the right way to do things. Nice guys believe there is a key to having a happy, problem-free life. They are convinced that if they can only figure out the right way to do everything, nothing should ever go wrong. Nice guys repress their feelings. Nice guys tend to analyze rather than feel. They may see feelings as a waste of time and energy. They frequently try to keep their feelings on an even keel. Nice guys often try to be different from their fathers. Many nice guys report having unavailable, absent, passive, angry, philandering, or alcoholic fathers. It is not unusual for these men to make a decision at some point in their lives to try to be 180 degrees different from dad. Nice guys are often more comfortable relating to women than to men. Due to their childhood conditioning, many nice guys have few male friends. Nice guys frequently seek the approval of women and convince themselves they are different from other men. They like to believe they are not selfish, angry, or abusive, traits they link to other men. Nice guys have difficulty making their needs a priority. These men often feel that it is selfish to put their needs first. They believe it is a virtue to put the needs of others ahead of their own. Nice guys often make their partner their emotional center. Many nice guys report that they are only happy if their partner is happy. Therefore, they will often focus tremendous energy on their intimate relationships. What's wrong with being a nice guy? We might be tempted to minimize the problem of the nice guy syndrome. After all, how can being nice be such a bad thing? We might even chuckle at the Marvin milquetoast behaviors of these men as portrayed in comic strips and television sitcoms. Since men already represent an easy target in our culture, the caricature of a sensitive guy might be an object of amusement rather than concern. Nice guys themselves frequently have a difficult time grasping the depth and seriousness of their beliefs and behaviors. When I begin working with these men, almost without exception they will ask, what is wrong with being a nice guy? Having picked up this book and puzzled over the title, you might be wondering the same thing. By giving these men the label nice guy, I'm not so much referring to their actual behaviors, but to their core belief system about themselves and the world around them. These men have been conditioned to believe that if they are nice, they will be loved, get their needs met, and have a smooth life. The term nice guy is actually a misnomer, because nice guys are often anything but nice. Here are some not-so-nice traits of nice guys. Nice guys are dishonest. These men hide their mistakes, avoid conflict, say what they think people want to hear, and repress their feelings. These traits make nice guys fundamentally dishonest. Nice guys are secretive. Because they are so driven to seek approval, 
Nice guys will hide anything that they believe might upset anyone. The nice guy motto is, if at first you don't succeed, hide the evidence. Nice guys are compartmentalized. Nice guys are adept at harmonizing contradictory pieces of information about themselves by separating them into individual compartments in their minds. Therefore, a married man can create his own definition of fidelity, which allows him to deny that he had an affair with his secretary, or intern, because he never put his penis in her vagina. Nice guys are manipulative. Nice guys tend to have a hard time making their needs a priority and have difficulty asking for what they want in clear and direct ways. This creates a sense of powerlessness. Therefore, they frequently resort to manipulation when trying to get their needs met. Nice guys are controlling. A major priority for nice guys is keeping their world smooth. This creates a constant need to try to control the people and things around them. Nice guys give to get. Though nice guys tend to be generous givers, their giving often has unconscious and unspoken strings attached. They want to be appreciated. They want some kind of reciprocation. They want someone to stop being angry at them, etc. Nice guys often report feeling frustrated or resentful as a result of giving so much while seemingly getting so little in return. Nice guys are passive-aggressive. Nice guys tend to express their frustration and resentment in indirect, roundabout, and not-so-nice ways. This includes being unavailable, forgetting, being late, not following through, not being able to get an erection, climaxing too quickly, and repeating the same annoying behaviors even when they have promised to never do them again. Nice guys are full of rage. Though nice guys frequently deny ever getting angry, a lifetime of frustration and resentment creates a pressure cooker of repressed rage deep inside these men. This rage tends to erupt at some of the most unexpected and seemingly inappropriate times. Nice guys are addictive. Addictive behavior serves the purpose of relieving stress, altering moods, or medicating pain. Since nice guys tend to keep so much bottled up inside, it has to come out somewhere. One of the most common addictive behaviors for nice guys is sexual compulsiveness. Nice guys have difficulty setting boundaries. Many nice guys have a hard time saying no, stop, or I'm not going to. They often feel like helpless victims and see the other person as the cause of the problems they are experiencing. Nice guys are frequently isolated. Though nice guys desire to be liked and loved, their behaviors actually make it difficult for people to get very close to them. Nice guys are often attracted to people and situations that need fixing. This behavior is often the result of the nice guy's childhood conditioning, his need to look good, or his quest for approval. Unfortunately, this tendency pretty much guarantees that nice guys will spend most of their time putting out fires and managing crises. Nice guys frequently have problems in intimate relationships. Though nice guys often put tremendous emphasis on this part of their lives, 
Their intimate relationships are frequently a source of struggle and frustration. For example, nice guys are often terrible listeners because they are too busy trying to figure out how to defend themselves or fix the other person's problem. Because of their fear of conflict, nice guys are frequently dishonest and are rarely available to work all the way through a problem. It is not unusual for nice guys to form relationships with partners whom they believe to be projects or diamonds in the rough. When these projects don't polish up as expected, nice guys tend to blame their partner for standing in the way of their happiness. Nice guys have issues with sexuality. Though most nice guys deny having problems with sex, I have yet to meet one who isn't either dissatisfied with his sex life, has a sexual dysfunction, can't get or maintain an erection, climaxes too quickly, or has sexually acted out through affairs, prostitution, pornography, compulsive masturbation, etc. Nice guys are usually only relatively successful. The majority of nice guys I've met have been talented, intelligent, and moderately successful. Almost without exception, though, they fail to live up to their full potential. But he seemed like such a nice guy. It is not unusual for unsuspecting people to mistake the passive, pleasing, and generous characteristics of a nice guy for those of a healthy male. To many women, the nice guy initially appears to be a real catch, because the nice guy is different from other men they've been with. Unfortunately, the negative traits listed above find a way to ooze out into the nice guy's lives and personal relationships. As a result, these men tend to swing back and forth between being nice and not so nice. I have listened to countless wives, partners, and girlfriends describe the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde quality of nice guys. He can be really wonderful, and he can also hurt me deeply. He'll do all the extra little things like picking up the kids and fixing dinner when I have to put in extra hours at work, but then out of the blue, he'll throw a tantrum about me never being sexually available to him. Everyone thinks he is such a great guy, and I'm really lucky to have him, but they don't know what he can really be like. He's always helping people out with their car or something else that needs fixing. When I ask him to do something, he tells me that he can never make me happy and that I'm nagging and controlling like his mother. He is constantly trying to please me. He will do anything for me except really be there for me. He'll go shopping with me even though I know he doesn't want to. The whole time he will just sulk, which makes me miserable. I wish he would just tell me no sometimes. He will never tell me when something is bothering him. He'll just keep it in, and it will build like a pressure cooker. I won't have a clue that anything is bothering him. And then, out of the blue, he'll explode, and we'll end up having a big fight. If he would just tell me when he is upset about something, it would make it a lot easier. When I try to talk to him about something that is bothering me, he tries to fix it. He thinks that if I just did everything his way, it would solve all of my problems. He always tells me that I dwell on the negative and that he can never make me happy. All I really want is for him to listen to me. After all the other crummy men I've been with, I thought I'd finally found a nice guy that I could trust. Five years into our marriage, I found out that he was addicted to pornography and peep shows. I was devastated. I never had a clue. I wish I could wave a magic wand, keep all of his good traits, 
and make all of the others disappear. The Integrated Male After enrolling in a No More Mr. Nice Guy therapy group, Gill, a pleasant man in his early 50s, revealed that his wife was supportive of his joining a group. Nevertheless, he harbored a secret fear that she would be angry at what the name of the group seemed to imply, how to stop being a nice guy and become an SOB. Using typical nice guy logic, Gill questioned why any woman would be supportive of men becoming not nice. Nice guys tend to be very black and white in their thinking. The only alternative they can see to being nice is becoming bastards or jerks. I frequently remind nice guys that the opposite of crazy is still crazy, so becoming a jerk isn't the answer. Recovery from the nice guy syndrome isn't about going from one extreme to another. The process of breaking free from ineffective nice guy patterns doesn't involve becoming not nice. Rather, it means becoming integrated. Being integrated means being able to accept all aspects of oneself. An integrated man is able to embrace everything that makes him unique. His power, his assertiveness, his courage, and his passion, as well as his imperfections, his mistakes, and his dark side. An integrated male possesses many of the following attributes. He has a strong sense of self. He likes himself just as he is. He takes responsibility for getting his own needs met. He is comfortable with his masculinity and his sexuality. He has integrity. He does what is right, not what is expedient. He is a leader. He is willing to provide for and protect those he cares about. He is clear, direct, and expressive of his feelings. He can be nurturing and giving without caretaking or problem-solving. He knows how to set boundaries and is not afraid to work through conflict. An integrated male doesn't strive to be perfect or gain the approval of others. Instead, he accepts himself just as he is, warts and all. An integrated male accepts that he is perfectly imperfect. Making the transformation from a nice guy to an integrated male doesn't come about just by trying harder to be a good man. Breaking free from the nice guy syndrome demands embracing a totally different way of viewing oneself and the world and a complete change in one's personal paradigm. Let me explain. Paradigms A paradigm is the roadmap we use to navigate life's journey. Everyone uses these roadmaps, and everyone assumes the map they are using is up-to-date and accurate. Paradigms often operate at an unconscious level, yet they determine to a large degree our attitudes and behaviors. They serve as a filter through which we process life experiences. Data that does not fit our paradigm is screened out and never reaches our conscious mind. Information that does fit our paradigm is magnified by the process, adding even greater support for that particular way of believing. Paradigms, like roadmaps, can be great tools for speeding us along our journey. Unfortunately, if they are outdated or inaccurate, they can send us in the wrong direction or fruitlessly driving around the same old neighborhood. When this happens, we often keep trying harder to find our desired destination 
while feeling more and more frustrated. Even though an individual following an inaccurate or outdated paradigm may think that his behavior makes perfect sense, those around him may wonder what he could possibly be thinking to make him act the way he does. Most paradigms are developed when we were young, naive, and relatively powerless. They are often based on inaccurate interpretations of childhood experiences. Since they are often unconscious, they are rarely evaluated or updated. Unfortunately, these paradigms are assumed to be 100% accurate, even when they are not. The Ineffective Nice Guy Paradigm the working paradigm of the nice guy is this. If I can hide my flaws and become what I think others want me to be, then I will be loved, get my needs met, and have a problem-free life. Even when this paradigm is ineffective, nice guys only see one alternative. Try harder. Nice guys are notoriously slow learners and amazingly quick forgetters when their paradigms are challenged. Their inclination is to hang on to belief systems that have proven to be consistently unworkable, yet are so embedded in their unconscious mind that to challenge them is tantamount to heresy. It is difficult for nice guys to consider doing something different, even when what they are doing isn't working. Jason, whose sexual difficulties with his wife Heather were introduced at the beginning of this chapter, is a good example of the frustration that can result from an ineffective nice guy paradigm. Jason had a controlling, perfectionistic father who put unrealistic demands on Jason and his siblings. His father believed that there was one right way to do everything, his way. Jason's mother was an emotionally dependent woman who lived through her children. When his mother was needy, she would smother her kids. When the children had needs, she was often too emotionally distressed to respond. Jason learned to cope with his childhood experience by developing a paradigm that included believing that if he could figure out how to do everything right, he could garner his father's approval and avoid his criticism, believing that if he responded to his mother's neediness by being attentive and nurturing, she would be available to him when he had needs, believing if he was never a moment's problem, he would get love and approval, believing that if he hid his mistakes, no one would ever get mad at him. As a child, Jason was too naive and powerless to realize that no matter what he did, he would never live up to his father's expectations. Similarly, no matter how giving he was, his needy mother would never be available to nurture him. He could not see that there really was no way to do everything right. And regardless of how well he hid his flaws or mistakes, people might still get angry at him. Even when his childhood roadmap failed to take him in the desired direction, the only option he could see was to just keep trying harder doing more of the same. The only thing his paradigm ever really did was to create a distraction from his feelings of fear, worthlessness, and inadequacy. In adulthood, Jason tried to apply his childhood paradigm to his relationship with his wife. Like his mother, his wife was only attentive when she was emotionally needy. Like his father, 
she could be critical and controlling. By applying his childhood roadmap to his marriage, trying to do everything right, being attentive and nurturing, never being a moment's problem, hiding his mistakes, Jason created an illusion that he could get his wife to approve of him all the time, be sexually available whenever he wanted, and never get mad at him. His defective paradigm prevented him from seeing that no matter what he did, his wife would still at times be cold, critical, and unavailable, and that maybe he needed her to be that way. Even when his paradigm was just as ineffective in adulthood as it was in childhood, Jason's only option seemed to be to just keep trying harder. Doing Something Different One of my all-time favorite Seinfeld episodes is the one where George decided to change his life by acting the opposite of how he would have typically behaved. Ironically, by doing everything the opposite, he gets a beautiful girlfriend and a job with the Yankees. While doing everything the opposite may not be the answer for breaking free from the nice guy syndrome, doing some things different is. Over the last several years, I have watched countless men do something different by applying the principles contained in this book. These men have transformed themselves from resentful, frustrated, helpless nice guys into assertive, empowered, and happy individuals. Just like George on The Seinfeld Show, when nice guys decide to make a change, interesting things begin to happen. Among other things, I've watched these men accept themselves just as they are, use their mistakes as valuable learning tools, stop seeking the approval of others, experience loving and intimate relationships, make their needs a priority, find people who are able and willing to help them meet their needs, learn to give judiciously and with no strings attached, face their fears, develop integrity and honesty, set boundaries, build meaningful relationships with men, create healthier, more satisfying relationships with women, experience and express their feelings, deal with problems directly, develop an intimate and satisfying sexual relationship, find peace with the changing complexities of life. Asking for help. Nice guys believe they should be able to do everything on their own. They have a difficult time asking for help and try to hide any signs of imperfection or weakness. Breaking free from the nice guy syndrome involves reversing this pattern. Recovery from the nice guy syndrome is dependent on revealing oneself and receiving support from safe people. It is essential, therefore, that men who want to break free from the nice guy syndrome find safe people to assist them in this process. I encourage recovering nice guys to begin this process with a therapist, therapy group, 12-step group, a religious leader, or close friend. Since nice guys tend to seek out the approval of women, I strongly encourage them to begin this process with men. For some nice guys, the concept of safe men may seem like an oxymoron, but I highly recommend it anyway.
I've been leading men's therapy groups for recovering nice guys for several years. Some of the most significant aspects of my own recovery from the nice guy syndrome, even before I knew what it was, occurred in the context of 12-step groups and therapy groups. Even though I'm sure it is possible to break free from the nice guy syndrome without the help of a group, it is the most effective tool I know for facilitating the recovery process. Breaking Free Activities If you recognize yourself or someone you love in what you have read so far, read on. This book presents a practical and effective guide for breaking free from the negative effects of the nice guy syndrome. This program has worked for countless men and it can work for you or a loved one. To help facilitate this process, I present numerous breaking free activities throughout the book. These breaking free activities serve to facilitate the paradigm shift that is necessary for recovery from the nice guy syndrome. They will not only help recovering nice guys understand where their paradigms came from, but will help replace them with more accurate and up-to-date ones. These assignments will also point recovering nice guys in a direction that will help them start doing things differently. Caution Before you decide to apply the principles presented in this book, I must first warn you about two things. The first is that the program of recovery presented in No More Mr. Nice Guy is not just a few good ideas to try on for size. It represents a challenge to everything nice guys believe about what they must do to be loved, get their needs met, and keep their world calm. Breaking free from the nice guy syndrome involves a radical change in perspective and behavior. Trying to do it halfway will only result in needless suffering. Second, breaking free from the nice guy syndrome will significantly affect your personal relationships. If you are currently in a relationship, I encourage you to ask your partner to read this book along with you. The program of recovery presented in No More Mr. Nice Guy will significantly affect you, as well as those closest to you. Though your partner may be supportive of you making positive changes, they may also initially frighten him or her. Reading this book together can help facilitate this transition. With these warnings aside, if what you have read so far makes sense, keep reading. The following chapters contain information that can help you break free from the nice guy syndrome and start getting what you want in love and life. Breaking Free, Activity Number One Write down three possible safe people or groups that might be able to provide support for you in your recovery from the nice guy syndrome. If no one comes to mind, get out the telephone directory and look up counselors or support groups in the phone book. Write down three names and phone numbers and call them when you finish this chapter. If you are employed by a company with an employee assistance program, this is another resource. If you know someone who has been to therapy or a support group, ask them for information. If you have access to the Internet, you can search for 12-step groups or support groups. Breaking Free Activity Number 2 Why would it seem rational for a person to try to eliminate or hide certain things about himself and try to become something different 
unless there was a compelling reason for him to do so. Why do people try to change who they really are? Take some time and think about this. Is this your behavior or the behavior of someone you know? Chapter 2 The Making of a Nice Guy I concluded the previous chapter with the questions. Why would it seem rational for a person to try to eliminate or hide certain things about himself and try to become something different unless there was a compelling reason for him to do so? Why do people try to change who they really are? After spending years examining the nice guy syndrome from every possible angle, there's only one answer to this question that makes sense. Because it does not feel safe or acceptable for a boy or man to be just who he is. Becoming a nice guy is a way of coping with situations where it does not feel safe or acceptable for a boy or man to be just who he is. Furthermore, the only thing that would make a child or an adult sacrifice oneself by trying to become something different is a belief that being just who he is must be a bad and or dangerous thing. The premise of this book is that during their formative years, all nice guys received messages from their families and the world around them that it was not safe, acceptable, or desirable for them to be who they were just as they were. So how did nice guys receive these messages and why did they respond to them in the way that they did? The following is a short course on how families and society turn perfect little boys into men who believe they have to be good in order to be loved. Coping with Abandonment The most impressionable time in an individual's life is from birth to about five years. In these first few years, a child's personality is most significantly influenced by his surroundings. It is during this time that his paradigms begin to be established. Since the strongest influences during this time are usually a child's parents and extended family, this is where we must begin our examination of the origins of the nice guy syndrome. There are two important facts we must understand about children. First, when children come into the world, they are totally helpless. They are dependent on others to recognize and respond to their needs in a timely, judicious manner. As a result of this dependency, every child's greatest fear is abandonment. To children, abandonment means death. Second, children are ego-centered. This means that they inherently believe they are the center of the universe and everything revolves around them. Therefore, they believe that they are the cause of everything that happens to them. These two factors, their fear of abandonment and their ego-centeredness, create a very powerful dynamic for all children. Whenever a child experiences any kind of abandonment, he will always believe that he is the cause of what has happened to him. These abandonment experiences might include any of the following. He is hungry and no one feeds him. He cries, and no one holds him. He is lonely, and no one pays attention to him. A parent gets angry at him. A parent neglects him. 
a parent puts unrealistic expectations on him. A parent uses him to gratify his or her own needs. A parent shames him. A parent hits him. A parent doesn't want him. A parent leaves him and doesn't come back in a timely manner. Because every child is born into an imperfect world and into an imperfect family, every child has abandonment experiences. Even though their belief that they are the cause of these painful events is, in fact, an inaccurate interpretation of their life, children have no other way to understand the world. Toxic Shame These abandonment experiences and the naive, ego-centered interpretation of them creates a belief in some young children that it is not acceptable for them to be who they are just as they are. They conclude that there must be something wrong with them which causes the important people in their lives to abandon them. They have no way of comprehending that their abandonment experiences are not caused by something about them, but by the people who are supposed to recognize and meet their needs. This naive, ego-centered interpretation of their abandonment experiences creates a psychological state called toxic shame. Toxic shame is the belief that one is inherently bad, defective, different, or unlovable. Toxic shame is not just a belief that one does bad things, it is a deeply held core belief that one is bad. Survival Mechanisms As a result of these abandonment experiences and the faulty interpretation of these events, all children develop survival mechanisms to help them do three very important things. Try to cope with the emotional and physical distress of being abandoned. Try to prevent similar events from happening again. Try to hide their internalized toxic shame or perceived badness from themselves and others. Children find a multitude of creative ways to try to accomplish these three goals. Since their insight, experience, and resources are limited, these survival mechanisms are often ineffective and sometimes seemingly illogical. For instance, a child who is feeling lonely may misbehave in a way that is sure to attract his parents' attention in a negative way. Even though it may seem illogical for a child to do something that invites painful or negative attention, the consequences of the behavior may not feel as bad as feeling lonely or isolated. Trying to be good, trying to become what he believes others want him to be, is just one of many possible scripts the little boy might form as a result of childhood abandonment experiences and the internalization of toxic shame. The Origin of the Nice Guy Paradigm When I first began exploring my own nice guy attitude and behaviors, I had no idea how all the pieces fit together. I believed that I came from a pretty good family, 
and had lived a pretty good life. When I began observing other men with traits similar to my own, I encountered the same general lack of insight into the origins of their own emotional and behavioral patterns. When questioned about their childhood, nice guys frequently tell me they grew up in perfect, great, leave-it-to-beaver or all-American families. Nevertheless, these men learned to hide their flaws and tried to become what they believed others wanted them to be. These factors indicate that at some point in their early lives, their circumstances were less than ideal. Alan, Jason, and Jose all are nice guys. Each of these men had different childhood experiences. They are all unique in the way that their nice guy scripts are played out in their adult lives. In spite of these differences, they all developed a core belief in childhood that they were not okay just as they were. As a result of their internalized toxic shame, each developed a life paradigm that involved seeking approval and hiding perceived flaws. All of these men believed that these life strategies were necessary if they were to have any hope of being loved, getting their needs met, and having a problem-free life. Alan The oldest of three children in a single-parent family, Alan prided himself on having never caused his mother a moment's pain. As a child, he performed well in sports and school. He believed that these things set him apart from his siblings and made his mother proud. Alan was the first person in his family to get a college degree, another factor he believed made him special. Alan's father, an abusive alcoholic, abandoned the family when Alan was seven. At an early age, Alan made a decision to be 180 degrees different from his father. As a result, he prided himself on being patient, giving, and even keeled. Alan worked hard to never be angry or demeaning like his father. He was an active leader in his youth group at church and never drank alcohol or did drugs as a teenager. Alan's mother, a fundamentalist Christian, raised Alan in a sect that preached hellfire and brimstone. He came to believe that he was a sinner for having normal thoughts, impulses, and behaviors. Though he always worked hard to be a good Christian, he lived with a constant fear that he might make a mistake and suffer everlasting punishment. Alan believed his mother was a saint. She would do anything for her children. She would listen and wasn't critical. Frequently, she and Alan would commiserate with each other about all the bad things his dad did. On more than one occasion, Alan's mother told him she was trying to raise her sons to be different from their father. She wanted them to grow up to be giving, peaceful, and respectful of women. As an adult, Alan still stays in close touch with his mother and does whatever he can to help make her life easier. Jason Jason, introduced in Chapter 1, believed he grew up in a leave-it-to-beaver family. In reality, both of Jason's parents lived through their children. Though he saw his childhood as ideal, in actuality, his parents used him and his siblings to meet their own needs. Jason believed his parents were perfect. He described them as being strict and overprotective. 
He acknowledged that he was sheltered and sexually naive and admitted that he might have been smothered by his parents. Jason's father closely directed the family. Jason reported that his father still tried to control Jason's life. Jason shared a chiropractic practice with his father, who ran the business, told Jason what house he should buy, what car to drive, and what church he should attend. Jason described his mother as a wonderful, loving woman. He reported that she was always involved with the kids. With no friends of her own, she turned to her children for companionship and affirmation of her worth. Jason couldn't remember his parents showing much affection to each other. He couldn't picture them having sex and wondered how they made three kids. Even though they did a lot of things with the children, he couldn't remember them ever going out or taking a vacation just by themselves. As an adult, Jason tried to live up to the image of perfection portrayed by his parents. Everything he did was calculated to look good. He looked like a good husband, a good father, a good Christian, and a good professional. In spite of all his efforts, he always felt inadequate and defective compared to his parents. Jose A successful business consultant, Jose was afraid of intimate relationships. Jose was highly educated and had a stressful, high-powered career. He was physically active, and his idea of recreation was taking a hundred-mile bike ride or climbing a mountain. He repressed his anger and tried to never say anything that would upset anyone. He saw himself as controlling and acknowledged that his drug of choice was recognition. Jose was attracted to dependent women. He found it interesting that he seemed to be attracted to incest survivors. He stayed in his present relationship because he was concerned about the financial welfare of his girlfriend. He was afraid she wouldn't make it if he left. Jose openly acknowledged that he came from a dysfunctional family. He was the second of seven children in a working-class family. At around the age of 14, he took on the role of parenting his younger siblings. Jose reported that there was tremendous chaos in his family, and he saw his job as protecting his brothers and sisters from its effects. Jose saw his father as angry, controlling, and abusive. He was explosive and demeaning to the boys and sexually abusive to the girls. Jose's mother was manic-depressive. She had extreme mood swings and had a difficult time staying on her medication. When she was manic, the house would be spotless. She would talk of entertaining politicians and socialites, and she would begin destructive sexual relationships. When she was depressed, she kept the windows covered, the house became a wreck, and she would threaten to kill herself. When he was 15, Jose had to break through a locked door and take a loaded gun away from his mother. She had been threatening suicide while all seven kids stood by terrified. Jose saw this as a typical scenario growing up in his home. Jose worked hard all of his life to be different from his family. His family had him on a pedestal, and he was the one to whom everyone turned whenever they had a problem. His job as a family member was fixing chaos. His job as a business consultant was fixing chaos. 
His role in relationships was fixing chaos. Jose's life script required chaos because without it, he would be out of a job. Jose considered his natural intelligence, work ethic, and ability to solve problems his saving grace. He believed these factors allowed him to escape his family dysfunction and make something of himself. Without them, he was convinced he would have ended up just like his parents and the rest of his siblings. Child Development 101 Alan, Jason, and Jose all had very different childhood experiences, yet all developed a similar script that guided their lives. Each, in various ways, internalized a belief that they were not okay just as they were, and their survival depended on becoming something different. To help us connect the dots and see how three very different childhood experiences could create three men with very similar life paradigms, it might be helpful to do a quick review of the child development principles presented earlier in this chapter. All children are born totally helpless. A child's greatest fear is abandonment. All children are ego-centered. All children have numerous abandonment experiences when their needs are not met in a timely, judicious manner. When a child has an abandonment experience, he always believes that he is the cause. This naive misinterpretation creates toxic shame, a belief that he is bad. Children develop survival mechanisms to cope with their abandonment experiences, to prevent the experiences from happening again, and to hide their badness from themselves and others. These childhood survival mechanisms reflect a child's inherent powerlessness and naive view of himself and the world. From Perfect Little Boys to Nice Guys The principles above can be applied to the childhood experiences of Alan, Jason, Jose, and every other nice guy described in this book. The progression from perfect little boy to nice guy basically occurs in three stages. Abandonment, internalization of toxic shame, and the creation of survival mechanisms. Abandonment Like all nice guys, Alan, Jason, and Jose were abandoned in various ways. Alan and Jose had an angry or critical parent who communicated that they were not okay just as they were. Alan worshipped his mother, but she would not intervene when his father lashed out at Alan. This implied that he wasn't worth protecting. Alan came to believe that he had to be different from his father, to be seen as a good man and beloved by his mother. Alan and Jason were used and objectified by their parents. They were valued for always doing it right and never being a problem. This communicated that they were only lovable when they lived up to their parents' expectations. Since Jason believed his parents were perfect, he always felt flawed and inadequate compared to them. Neither of Jose's parents provided any guidance, nurturing, or support. This communicated that he was of little or no value to them. Alan and Jason grew up in fundamentalist churches that reinforced a need to be perfect and sinless. 
Failure to do so meant everlasting punishment. Jose believed he was valuable only if he was different from his crazy family. All three, Alan, Jason, and Jose, believed that someone else's needs were more important than their own, a common occurrence in nice guy families. All of these experiences represented a form of abandonment because they communicated to these little boys that they were not okay just as they were. Shame Regardless of whether they were abused, abandoned, neglected, shamed, used, smothered, controlled, or objectified, all nice guys internalized the same belief. It was a bad or dangerous thing for them to be just who they were. Some of these messages were communicated overtly by parents who had no concern for the child's welfare. Some were communicated indirectly by caring parents who themselves were too young, overwhelmed, or distracted to provide a nurturing environment for their child. At times, these messages were communicated by circumstances that were beyond anyone's control. In every situation, the child believed these events and circumstances were telling a story about him. He believed there was something about him that caused these things to happen. Using childlike logic, he concluded, There must be something wrong with me because... Fill in the blank. When I cry, no one comes. Mom gets that look on her face. Dad left and didn't come back. Mom has to do everything for me. Dad yells at me. I'm not perfect like Mom and Dad. I can't make Mom happy. These childhood experiences also caused the young boy to believe, I'm only good enough and lovable when, fill in the blank, I'm different from Dad, Mom needs me, I don't make any mistakes, I make good grades, I'm happy, I'm not like my brother, I don't cause anyone any problems, I make mom and dad happy. Survival Mechanisms As a result of their childhood abandonment experiences and the inaccurate interpretation of these events, all nice guys develop survival mechanisms to help them do three very important things. Try to cope with the pain and terror caused by their abandonment experiences. Try to prevent these abandonment experiences from occurring again. Try to hide their toxic shame from themselves and others. For nice guys, these survival mechanisms take the form of the following life paradigm. If I can hide my flaws and become what I think others want me to be, then I will be loved get my needs met, and have a problem-free life. It is this paradigm, formed in childhood, that guides and controls everything nice guys do in their adult lives. Even though it is based on faulty interpretations of childhood events, it is the only roadmap these men have. Nice guys believe this map is accurate, and if they follow it correctly, they should arrive at their desired location. A smooth, happy life. Even though this life script is often highly ineffective, nice guys frequently just keep trying harder, doing more of the same, hoping for different results. 
Two kinds of nice guys. The survival mechanisms that nice guys develop to deal with their abandonment experiences and internalized toxic shame are usually manifested in one of two ways. In one form, a nice guy exaggerates his toxic shame and believes he is the worst kind of person. I call this man the I'm so bad nice guy. The I'm so bad nice guy is convinced everyone can see how bad he is. He can give concrete examples of bad behavior in childhood, adolescence, and adulthood that support his core belief about himself. He can tell of breaking windows and getting whippings as a little boy. He will reveal running afoul of the law and making his mother cry when he was a teenager. He will tell tales of smoking, drinking, using drugs, and carousing as an adult. He is convinced his only hope for having any kind of happiness in his life lies in trying his best to mask his inherent badness. He never really believes anyone will buy into his nice guy persona, but doesn't think he has any other choice. The second kind of nice guy is the I'm-so-good nice guy. This man handles his toxic shame by repressing his core belief about his worthlessness. He believes he is one of the nicest guys you will ever meet. If he is conscious of any perceived flaws, they are seen as minor and easily correctable. As a child, he was never a moment's problem. As a teen, he did everything right. As an adult, he follows all the rules to a T. This nice guy has tucked his core toxic shame into a handy, airtight compartment in his unconscious mind. He masks his toxic shame with a belief that all the good things he does make him a good person. Even though the two kinds of nice guys may differ in their conscious awareness of their toxic shame, both operate from the same life paradigm. All nice guys believe they are not okay just as they are, and therefore must hide their flaws and become what they believe other people want them to be. I make the distinction between the two kinds of nice guys to help both see their distortions. Neither is as bad or good as they believe themselves to be. They are both just wounded souls operating from a belief system based on the inaccurate perceptions of the events of their childhood. Breaking Free Activity Number 3 It is impossible to cover every factor that might cause a young boy to try to hide his perceived flaws and seek approval from others. I don't believe it is essential for nice guys to uncover every experience that ever made them feel unsafe or bad. But I have found that some understanding of where a life script originated is helpful in changing that script. Reread the stories of Alan, Jason, and Jose. Think about how these stories are similar to your own childhood experiences. On a separate piece of paper or in a journal, Write down or illustrate the messages you received in your family that seemed to imply that it wasn't okay for you to be who you were, just as you were. Share these experiences with a safe person. As you do, note your feelings. Do you feel sad, angry, lonely, numb? Share this information as well. The purpose of this assignment is to name rather than blame. Blaming will keep you stuck. 
Naming these childhood experiences will allow you to replace these messages with more accurate ones and help you change your nice guy script. The Baby Boom Generation and the Sensitive Guy Every child who has ever lived has experienced various forms of abandonment. There are many ways in which children can interpret and respond to these events. As stated above, becoming a nice guy is just one of many possible reactions. The childhood experiences described above are probably not sufficient in themselves, however, to account for the multitude of nice guys I encounter regularly. I have no doubt that nice guys have always existed. There have always been Marvin Milk Toast and Walter Mitty kinds of guys out there. I'm sure there's never been a shortage of mama's boys and henpecked husbands. I believe many little boys are born with a peaceful, generous temperament and grow up to be peaceful, generous men. But after years of working with countless men, I'm convinced that a unique combination of social dynamics over the last five decades has produced a plethora of nice guys in historically unprecedented numbers. To truly understand the current phenomena of the nice guy syndrome, we have to take into account a series of significant social changes that began around the turn of the century and accelerated following World War II. These social dynamics included the transition from an agrarian to an industrial economy, the movement of families from rural areas to urban areas, the absence of fathers from the home, the increase in divorce, single-parent homes, and homes headed by women, an educational system dominated by women, women's liberation and feminism, the Vietnam War, the sexual revolution. These events combined to have a major impact on American boys growing up in this era. These social changes created three profound dynamics that contributed to the widespread phenomena of the nice guy syndrome in the baby boom generation. Boys were separated from their fathers and other significant male role models. As a result, men became disconnected from other men in general and confused as to what it meant to be male. Boys were left to be raised by women. The job of turning boys into men was left to mothers and a school system dominated by women. As a result, men became comfortable being defined by women and became dependent on the approval of women. Radical feminism implied that men were bad and or unnecessary. The messages of radical feminism furthered the belief of many men that if they wanted to be loved and get their needs met, they had to become what they believed women wanted them to be. For many men, this meant trying to hide any traits that might cause them to be labeled as bad men. 20th Century History 101 The following is a brief overview of how some of the dynamic social changes of the last half of the 20th century helped create the bumper crop of nice guys in our culture. The Loss of Fathers The shift to a manufacturing society and urban migration in the post-war years took fathers away from their sons in droves. According to the U.S. Census, in 1910, one-third of all families lived on farms. 
By 1940, this number had shrunk to one in five. By 1970, 96% of all families lived in urban areas. In an agrarian society, boys connected with their fathers by working alongside them in the fields. This often meant contact with extended family that included grandfathers, uncles, and cousins. This daily contact with men provided boys with an intimate model of maleness. Sons learned about being male by watching their dads, just as their own fathers had learned by watching their fathers. As families migrated from rural areas to cities and suburbs after World War II, the contact between fathers and sons diminished significantly. Dads left home in the morning and went to work. Most sons never got to see what their fathers did, let alone have much time to spend with them. Fathers became unavailable in other ways. Men's addictions to work, TV, alcohol, and sex took them away from their sons. Increases in divorce began to separate boys from their fathers. Census statistics show that the incidence of divorce tripled from 1940 to 1970. In 1940, just over 5 million households were headed by women. By 1970, this figure had almost tripled to over 13 million households. In general, nice guys I have worked with do not report having had a close, bonded relationship with their fathers in childhood. Sometimes this was a result of their fathers working long hours, being withdrawn, or being passive. More often than not, nice guys describe their fathers in negative terms. They often see them as controlling, rageful, angry, absent, abusive, unavailable, addictive, or philandering. It is not unusual at some point in childhood for nice guys to have made a conscious decision to be different from their fathers. The unavailability of dads during this era often required mothers to take over the job of the fathers. Women inherited the de facto job of turning boys into men. Unfortunately, even the most well-meaning mothers are not equipped to teach their sons how to be men by themselves. This hasn't kept them from trying. I believe the significant number of nice guys produced in the 40s, 50s, and 60s is the direct result of mothers, not fathers, teaching their sons how to be male. Consequently, many nice guys have adopted a female perspective of masculinity and are comfortable having their manhood defined by women. The Female-Dominated Educational System The modern educational system has also contributed to the dynamic of boys being raised by women. Since World War II, boys have entered schools dominated by females. For most boys, the first several years in school become basic training in how to please women. From kindergarten through sixth grade, I only had one male teacher and six female teachers. This is pretty consistent with national norms. Men account for just one in four teachers nationwide. In the primary grades, they make up only 15% of the teaching staff, and that number is steadily dropping. From daycare to preschool to elementary school, little boys in the post-war era have been surrounded by women. 
there have been few adult males to help them through this experience. If a little boy was already disconnected from his father and trained to please a woman, the typical school system magnified this conditioning. The Vietnam War In the 60s, the Vietnam War crystallized the feelings of alienation between many baby boom boys and their fathers. Battle lines were drawn between young men protesting a war started and perpetuated by their fathers. A generation of World War II veterans could not understand the flaunting of responsibility and the social rebellion of their sons. The young men of this generation became the antithesis of their fathers and of an establishment that solved domestic and international problems with guns and bombs. The anti-war movement created a new breed of males focused on love, peace, and avoiding conflict. Women's Liberation During this same period of time, many women were beginning to work outside of the home. Birth control provided new freedom, and women's liberation was in its infancy. Some mothers during the baby boom era could foresee a change in gender roles on the horizon. They worked to prepare their sons and daughters for what was to come. Many of these mothers raised their daughters to not need a man. At the same time, they trained their sons to be different from their fathers, peaceful, giving, nurturing, and attentive to a woman's needs. Radical feminism in the 60s and 70s projected an angry generalization about men. Some feminists claimed that men were the cause of all the problems in the world. Others asserted that men were merely an unnecessary nuisance. More than likely, the majority of women during this era did not feel this way about men. Nevertheless, enough angry women were significantly vocal to contribute to a social climate that convinced many men that it was not okay to be just who they were. Epithets like, men are pigs and all men are rapists, were prominent during this time. Less angry slogans of feminism asserted that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Men who were already conditioned to look to women for definition and approval were especially susceptible to these kinds of messages. This added incentive for these men to try to figure out what women wanted and try to become that in order to be loved and get their needs met. Soft Males and Boy Men Robert Bly, the author of Iron John, writes about how the social changes of the baby boom era created a new breed of American men. Bly calls these men soft males. He writes, They're lovely, valuable people. I like them. They're not interested in harming the earth or starting wars. There's a gentle attitude towards life in their whole being and style of living. But many of these men are not happy. You quickly notice the lack of energy in them. They are life-preserving, but not exactly life-giving. Ironically, you often see these men with strong women who positively radiate energy. Here we have a finely tuned young man, ecologically superior to his father, sympathetic to the whole harmony of the universe, yet he himself has little vitality to offer. From a different perspective, Camille Paglia comments on how the social changes of the last five decades have changed the roles of men and women. The hard-driving woman has to switch personae when she gets home. She's got to throttle back or she'll castrate everything in the domestic niche. 
Many white, middle-class women have dodged this dilemma by finding themselves a nice, malleable boy-man who becomes another son in the subliminally matriarchal household. Politically Incorrect Desires, Salon, Issue 49 Regardless of whether we call these men soft males, sensitive New Age guys, or nice guys, the unique combination of social events in the post-World War II era reinforced and magnified the messages that many little boys had already received from their families, that they weren't okay just as they were. These social events further amplified the belief that if they wanted to be loved, get their needs met, and have a smooth life, they had to hide their flaws and become what others, especially women, wanted them to be. My observation in recent years points to the reality that the conditioning described above did not end with the baby boom generation. I am seeing more and more young men in their 20s and even teens who demonstrate all of the characteristics of the nice guy syndrome. Not only have these young men been affected by all of the social dynamics listed above, even more grew up in single-parent families or were raised by nice-guy fathers. As I write this, I expect that we are just beginning on our third generation of nice-guys. The Habits of Highly Ineffective Men As a result of the family and social conditioning described above, nice-guys struggle to get what they want in love and life. Due to their shame and ineffective survival mechanisms, the roadmap they follow just won't take them where they want to go. This is frustrating. But rather than trying something different, their life paradigm requires that they keep trying harder, doing more of the same. I frequently tell nice guys, if you keep doing what you've always done, you'll keep getting what you've always had. To reiterate what I've illustrated before, Nice guys prevent themselves from getting what they want in love and life by seeking the approval of others, trying to hide their perceived flaws and mistakes, putting other people's needs and wants before their own, sacrificing their personal power and playing the role of a victim, disassociating themselves from other men and their own masculine energy, co-creating relationships that are less than satisfying, creating situations in which they do not have very much good sex, failing to live up to their potential. The next seven chapters present a proven plan to show recovering nice guys the most effective ways to do something different. Read on. It is time for you to start getting what you want in love and life. Chapter 3. Learn to Please Yourself. I'm a chameleon, revealed Todd, a 30-year-old single nice guy. I will become whatever I believe a person wants me to be in order to be liked. With my smart friends, I act intelligent and use a big vocabulary. Around my mother, I look like the perfect, loving son. With my dad, I talk sports. With the guys at work, I cuss and swear. Whatever it takes to look cool. Underneath it all, I'm not sure who I really am or if any of them would like me just for who I am. If I can't figure out what people want me to be, I'm afraid I will be all alone. The funny thing is, I feel alone most of the time anyway. Just about everything a nice guy does is consciously or unconsciously calculated to gain someone's approval or to avoid disapproval. 
Nice guys seek this validation in just about every relationship and social situation, even from strangers and people they don't like. Todd is an example of a man who, because of internalized toxic shame, believes he has to become what he thinks other people want him to be. The seeking of external validation is just one way in which nice guys frequently do the opposite of what works. By trying to please everyone, nice guys often end up pleasing no one, including themselves. Seeking Approval Because nice guys do not believe they are okay just as they are, they find a multitude of ways to convince themselves and others that they are lovable and desirable. They may focus on something about themselves, physical appearance, talent, intellect, something they do, act nice, dance well, work hard, or even something external to themselves, attractive wife, cute child, nice car, in order to get value and win others' approval. My word for these value-seeking mechanisms is attachments. Nice guys attach their identity and worth to these things and use them to convince themselves and others that they are valuable. Without these attachments, nice guys don't know what else about themselves would make anyone like or love them. Being a nice guy is the ultimate attachment for these men. They genuinely believe their commitment to being good and doing it right is what makes them valuable and compensates for their internalized belief that they are bad. Because of their toxic shame, it is impossible for nice guys to grasp that people might like them and love them just for who they are. They believe they are bad. The I'm-so-good nice guy is unconscious of this core belief, but it is a core belief nonetheless. And therefore, they assume that if anyone really got to know them, they would discover the same thing. Being able to attach themselves to things that make them feel valuable and garner approval from others seems essential if they hope to be loved, get their needs met, and have a problem-free life. Breaking Free Activity Number 4 I've taken surveys in several No More Mr. Nice Guy groups asking the members about the attachments they use to get external approval. The following are just a few of the responses. Look over the list. Note any of the ways in which you seek approval. Add to the list any behaviors that are uniquely you. Write down examples of each. Ask others for feedback about the ways in which they see you seeking approval. Having one's hair just right. Being smart. Having a pleasant, non-threatening voice. Appearing unselfish. Being different from other men. Staying sober. Being in good shape. Being a great dancer. Being a good lover. Never getting angry. Making other people happy. Being a good worker. Having a clean car. Dressing well. Being nice. Respecting women. Never offending anyone. Appearing to be good. How Nice Guys Use Attachments Cal is a typical nice guy in the way he uses attachments to seek approval. Cal tries to get external validation by always being in a good mood, driving a nice car, dressing well, having a cute daughter, and having an attractive wife. Let's pick one of these attachments to illustrate how Cal tries to get approval from others. 
Cal likes to dress his 14-month-old daughter in a cute dress and take her to the park. From the moment he begins to dress her, he is unconsciously attaching his value and identity to the acknowledgement he thinks he will receive from being a good dad. He knows that when he takes his daughter walking, people will look at her and smile. Some will comment about the cute little girl and her father out for a walk. A few will stop and ask her age, and others will gush about what a precious little angel she is. This attention makes Cal feel good about himself. The irony is that no one really values Cal for his attachments. Further, his dependency on external validation actually prevents people from getting to know him just as he is. None of these things have anything to do with who he is as a person. Nevertheless, they are the things he believes give him identity and value. Seeking the Approval of Women Nice guys seek external validation in just about every social situation, but their quest for approval is the most pronounced in their relationships with women. Nice guys interpret a woman's approval as the ultimate validation of their worth. Signs of a woman's approval can take the form of her desire to have sex, flirtatious behavior, a smile, a touch, or attentiveness. At the other end of the spectrum, if a woman is depressed, in a bad mood, or angry, nice guys interpret these things to mean that she is not accepting or approving of them. There are numerous negative consequences in seeking the approval of women. Seeking a woman's approval requires nice guys to constantly monitor the possibility of a woman's availability. The possibility of availability is a term I use to describe the subjective measure of a woman's sexual availability. Since nice guys see sex as the ultimate form of acceptance, and they believe a woman must be in a good mood before she will have sex, these men are constantly diligent to not do anything that might upset a woman whom they desire. In addition, if a woman they desire is angry, depressed, or in a bad mood, they believe they must do something quickly. Lie, offer solutions, sacrifice self, manipulate, to fix it. The possibility of availability extends beyond just sex. Since nice guys have been conditioned by their families and society to never do anything to upset a woman, they are hypervigilant in responding to the moods and desires of women they don't even plan on having sex with. Seeking women's approval gives women the power to set the tone of the relationship. Nice guys constantly report that their own moods are often tied to the moods of their partner. If she is happy and doing okay, so is he. If she is angry, depressed, or stressed, he will feel anxious until she feels better. This connection runs so deep that many nice guys have told me that they feel guilty if they are in a good mood when their partner is not. Seeking women's approval gives women the power to define men and determine their worth. If a woman says he is wrong or thinks he is a jerk, a nice guy will be inclined to believe she is right. Even if the nice guy argues with the woman's evaluation, at some level he knows that, since she is a woman, she must be right. One nice guy asked me, if a man is talking in the forest and no woman is there to hear him, is he still wrong? Seeking women's approval creates rage towards women. Though most nice guys claim to love women, 
The truth is, most of these men have tremendous rage towards women. This is because we tend to eventually despise whatever we make into our God. When our God fails to respond in the ways we expect, we humans tend to respond in one of two ways. We either blindly intensify our acts of worship or lash out in righteous anger. When nice guys put a woman or women on a pedestal and attempt to win their approval, sooner or later, this adoration will turn to rage when these objects of worship fail to live up to the nice guy's expectations. This is why it is not unusual to hear a nice guy proclaim his undying love to a woman in one breath and then ragefully call her a F.C. only moments later. I have found that many gay nice guys are just as susceptible as straight men to seeking women's approval. As long as the gay nice guy can convince himself that he is not sexually attracted to women, he can delude himself into thinking that women don't have any power over him. Breaking Free, Activity Number 5 Consider this. If you did not care what people thought of you, how would you live your life differently? If you were not concerned with getting the approval of women, how would your relationships with the opposite sex be different? Cover-Up Artists When my son Steve was nine years old, he accidentally poked some holes in our kitchen table with a ballpoint pen. When he realized what he had done, he immediately showed his mother the damage. Steve had appropriate, healthy shame about his mistake. He knew that his actions had caused damage to the table. He also knew that he had to take responsibility. Most importantly, he knew he wasn't bad. If I had done the same thing as a child, or even as an adult, I would have had an attack of toxic shame and tried my best to hide or deny what I had done. I would have been convinced someone was going to be angry at me and stop loving me. I would have lived with the secret as well as with the constant fear of being found out. Numerous nice guys have commented that they could relate to my son's situation. Without exception, every one of them has admitted that they would have done the opposite of what Steve did, tried to cover it up. As stated above, everything a nice guy does is calculated to try to win approval or avoid disapproval. Since nice guys do not believe they are okay just as they are, they see any mistake or perceived flaw as proof that they are bad and unlovable. They believe that if anyone sees how bad they really are, they will be hurt, shamed, or abandoned. As a result, nice guys are consummate cover-up artists. Nice guys believe they must hide or distract attention from any perceived shortcoming. If they forget something, if they are late, if they break something, if they don't understand something, if they do something wrong, if they are depressed, if they are in pain, if they generally mess up. The nice guy's need to hide is often the most pronounced in areas that are just part of being human and alive, that they are sexual, that they have bodily functions, that they are getting older, that they are losing their hair, that they have needs, that they are imperfect. Breaking Free, Activity Number 6 Look over the list above. Write down examples of situations in which you have tried to hide or distract attention 
from any of these perceived flaws. How effective do you think you are in keeping these things hidden from the people you love? Hiding the Evidence Nice guys find many creative ways to cover up their perceived flaws and mistakes. These include Lying Most nice guys pride themselves on being honest and trustworthy. Ironically, nice guys are fundamentally dishonest. Nice guys will tell lies, partial truths, and omit information if they believe it will prevent someone from focusing on them in a negative way. Drawing on their account Since nice guys strive so hard to be good, giving, and caring, they believe these acts should build up a credit that wipes clean any wrong they might do. Part of the nice guy's belief is that if he does most things right, no one should ever notice the few things, if any, he does wrong. Fixing Mature people take responsibility for their actions. When they make a mistake or act inappropriately, they apologize, make amends, or repair the damage. Conversely, nice guys try to fix situations by doing whatever it takes to get the other person to stop being upset. DEAR RESPONSE DEAR is an acronym I use for Defend, Explain, Excuse, Rationalize. These are all fear-based behaviors used to distract others from focusing on the nice guy's mistakes and badness. The nice guy is most likely to go into the DEAR response when he has done something or failed to do something and someone, usually wife, partner, or boss, confronts him and expresses his or her feelings. Turning the Tables If someone gets angry at a nice guy or points out some flaw or mistake, his shame will be triggered. In an attempt to distract himself and the other person from his badness, he may try to turn the tables and do something to trigger the other person's shame. I call this shame dumping. This unconscious strategy is based on the belief that if the nice guy can shift the focus to the other person's badness, he can slip out of the spotlight. Typically, shame dumping techniques include blame, bringing up the past, deflection, and pointing out the other person's flaws. Walls Nice guys build walls that prevent others from getting too close. Understandably, this affects their ability to be intimate, but it also protects them from the consequences of being found out. These walls might include addictions, food, sex, TV, alcohol, work, etc., humor, sarcasm, intellectualism, perfectionism, and isolation. Teflon Men As much as nice guys try to look good and get people to like them, the above defenses keep people at arm's length. Like most nice guy patterns, these unconscious behaviors actually accomplish the exact opposite of what the nice guy really craves. While desiring love and connection, his behaviors serve as an invisible force field that keeps people from being able to get close to him. Nice guys have a difficult time comprehending that in general, people are not drawn to perfection in others. People are drawn to shared interest, shared problems, and an individual's life energy. Humans connect with humans. 
Hiding one's humanity and trying to project an image of perfection makes a person vague, slippery, lifeless, and uninteresting. I often refer to nice guys as Teflon men. They work so hard to be smooth, nothing can stick to them. Unfortunately, this Teflon coating also makes it difficult for people to get close. It is actually a person's rough edges and human imperfections that give others something to connect with. Self-approval Recovery from the nice guy syndrome involves changing core paradigms. Instead of seeking external validation and avoiding disapproval, recovering nice guys must begin seeking their own approval. Ironically, when nice guys begin focusing on pleasing themselves, they actually begin to experience the intimacy and connection with others that they have always desperately craved. To help facilitate this recovery process, nice guys can identify how they seek approval, take good care of themselves, give themselves positive affirmations, spend extended periods of time alone, reveal themselves to safe people. Breaking Free Activity Number 7 Consider these questions. Do you believe that people can see your human imperfections and still love you? How would you be different if you knew the people who care about you would never leave you or stop loving you no matter what? Identifying approval-seeking behavior helps nice guys learn to approve of themselves. As odd as it may sound, nice guys have to practice being themselves. One way to begin this process is to pay attention when trying to impress or get approval. Recovering nice guys can observe themselves spending extra time on their hair, holding the door open for someone, cleaning the kitchen, or walking with their child in the park, just to get noticed or praised. As they become aware of how much time and energy they spend trying to garner approval, they can begin living an inside-out kind of life. This means, rather than focusing outward for acceptance and approval, they turn inward. In doing so, they can begin asking themselves the important questions. What do I want? What feels right to me? What would make me happy? Earlier in this chapter, I presented Cal as an illustration of how nice guys use attachments, things outside of themselves to get value. During a session of individual therapy, I asked Cal to make a list of things he used to get approval from others. The next week, he brought in a two-page list. I encouraged him to pick one attachment from the list and for the next month pay attention to how he used it to get value. Cal decided to focus on his car. Cal kept his car perfectly clean inside and out. He believed this was one of the things that impressed people and made them like him. He made a conscious decision to not wash or vacuum his car for the next month. While doing so, he would pay attention to how he felt and how people responded to him. Since Cal lives in the Seattle area, his car soon developed a gray haze from rain and road grime. On numerous occasions, he had to fight the impulse to wash it. When he drove down the road, he was sure that people were looking at his filthy car and judging him. When he drove to work or to a friend's house, he waited for someone to shame him. When his daughter drew pictures in the dirt with her finger, it was almost more than he could stand. At the end of the month, 
Cal washed and waxed his car and felt a sense of relief. Surprisingly enough, during the month, not one person had commented on his dirty car, and no one had quit liking him or removed their love from him. Likewise, washing and waxing his car after a month didn't make anyone like him better or garner him any new friends. Breaking Free Activity Number 8 Go back to the list of approval-seeking behaviors at the beginning of this chapter. Choose one of the ways you try to get external validation and do one of the following. 1. Go on a moratorium from this behavior. Set a period of time to stop doing it. Tell the people around you what you are doing. If you slip, tell a safe person about it. Use the slip as information about why, in that particular moment, you felt the need to get external approval. 2. Consciously do more of this behavior. This may not make logical sense, but it is a powerful way to explore any dysfunctional behavior. Observe how you feel when you consciously try harder to get external validation. Taking good care of the self helps nice guys learn to approve of themselves. Taking good care of the self is essential for changing one's belief about the self. If a nice guy believes he isn't worth much, his actions towards himself will reflect this belief. When a recovering nice guy begins to consciously do good things for himself, these actions imply that he must be worth something. When I address this issue with nice guys, they frequently can't think of more than one or two good things to do for themselves. Together, we will often brainstorm and make a list of possible things to do. These good things can range from simple acts like drinking lots of water or flossing their teeth to more extensive things like taking a trip or buying the car they've always wanted. Below are a few possibilities. Exercise, work out, go for a walk, eat healthy food, get enough sleep, relax, play, goof off, get a massage, go out with buddies, buy a new pair of shoes, get shoes polished, get dental work done, get a physical, listen to music. As the recovering nice guy begins to do good things for himself, he will feel uncomfortable. He may actually feel frightened, anxious, guilty, or confused. These feelings are the result of what is called cognitive dissonance. When the nice guy does something good for himself, he is doing something that implies he is valuable. This will conflict with his deeply held belief that he is worthless. As a result, he will experience dissonance, a clashing of two competing messages. In time, one of the beliefs will win. I encourage recovering nice guys to keep being good to themselves, no matter how frightening. In time, the core messages from childhood are replaced with new, more accurate beliefs that reflect their inherent worth. Todd introduced in the beginning of the chapter, spent so much time trying to get the approval of others that he rarely did anything for himself. On the encouragement of other men in his No More Mr. Nice Guy group, Todd decided to consciously begin doing things for himself. He began small by buying himself new socks and underwear. After a few weeks, he started an exercise program and began working out regularly. Even though it made him feel guilty, 
he started going to a massage therapist every other week. After six months, Todd decided to spend $2,000 to join a singles activity club. He shared with the group that even though he occasionally heard a little voice that said he wasn't worth it, doing so was one of the most affirming things he had ever done. A couple of months later, he reported that he had gone on two dates with two different women, both of whom seemed to like him just as he was. Breaking Free Activity Number 9 Begin with the list above and add good things that you can do for yourself. Put the list up where you will see it and choose at least one thing per day and do it for yourself. Affirming self helps nice guys learn to approve of themselves. Positive affirmations can help change the nice guy's core belief about himself. Affirmations replace old, inaccurate messages about the nice guy's worth with new, more realistic ones. When used alone, the effects of affirmations are usually short-lived. This is because these messages are contrary to the oldest, deepest-held beliefs the nice guy holds about himself. Affirmations are only effective when used along with other processes that help change the nice guy's core beliefs. Spending time alone helps nice guys learn to approve of themselves. Spending extended time alone is an important process in recovering from the nice guy syndrome. When alone, nice guys can discover who they are, what they like about themselves, and what rules they choose to govern their lives. I strongly recommend that nice guys take trips and retreats by themselves to places where no one knows them. In this context, the nice guy has fewer reasons to try to win people's approval, and there is less of a need to try to hide faults and mistakes. While alone, nice guys can reflect on themselves and their life direction. It is also a good time to practice taking responsibility for one's needs. When alone, the recovering nice guy can do what he wants without having to please or compromise. He will go to bed and get up when he wants. He will decide when and what to eat. He will decide where he goes and what he does. When alone, he will be less likely to caretake, seek approval, sacrifice self, or try to fix someone's problems. Spending extended periods of time alone also helps recovering nice guys face their number one fear loneliness, and isolation. When the nice guy discovers that spending time alone doesn't kill him, he may also realize that he doesn't have to stay in bad relationships, tolerate intolerable behavior, or manipulate people to try to get his needs met. This time alone is spent most effectively when the nice guy can observe his tendency to distract himself with addictive patterns such as keeping busy or using sex, food, or alcohol to medicate. Writing in a journal during these times can be especially effective. Some of the most insightful periods I've experienced in life have been by myself on weekend camping trips, week-long retreats, and times when my wife has been out of town. Breaking Free Activity Number 10 Make a list of positive affirmations about yourself. Write them on note cards and place them where you will see them regularly. Change the cards often so they stay fresh. When you read affirmations, close your eyes and fully embrace the meaning of the words. Observe any tendency of your mind 
to reject the affirmations in favor of old, deeply held beliefs. The following are some possible affirmations. I am lovable just as I am. I am perfectly imperfect. My needs are important. I am a strong and powerful person. I can handle it. People love and accept me just as I am. It is okay to be human and make mistakes. I am the only person I have to please. Revealing self helps nice guys learn to approve of themselves. When nice guys try to hide their humanity from others, they reinforce their core belief that they are bad and unlovable. Changing this core belief requires that they bring their humanity out into the open, release their toxic shame, and receive more accurate messages than the ones internalized in childhood. By necessity, this process requires a safe person or safe people. As frightening as it may initially feel, finding these safe people is essential for learning to approve of self. The recovering nice guy cannot do this part alone. Safe people are essential for reversing the distorted beliefs all nice guys have about their worth. This process requires building trust. I suggest that the recovering nice guy set a regular time to meet with his safe person or group and, a little at a time, start revealing himself. This process begins by just talking about himself. This in itself makes many nice guys uncomfortable. Over time, the recovering nice guy can begin revealing the things about himself that he is the least comfortable letting others see. Once trust has been established, he can begin to reveal things about himself that create fear and shame. I've watched many nice guys go from being secretive and evasive to revealing their deepest, darkest secrets in the presence of safe people. Reed, a recovering alcoholic and a member of a No More Mr. Nice Guy group, is a good example of this process. Reed came into group late one evening and remained quiet and detached for the first 30 or 40 minutes. Reed's pattern in the group was to either join in actively or stay withdrawn. His quiet periods were often a signal that he was emotionally distraught. When an opportune time arose, I told Reed that he seemed withdrawn, and I asked how he was doing. Once the attention of the group focused on him, his appearance shifted from detachment to terror. I almost didn't come tonight, he whispered softly as he looked down at his hands. In fact, I was thinking about quitting the group. A couple of the guys reflected the concern of the whole group by asking what was going on. I just feel so terrible, Reed continued. I've done something so terrible. I just don't know if I could face all of you. My thoughts began to race as to what he could have done that might cause the group to rise up in judgment against him. One of the group members asked if he was having an affair. No, worse, Reed responded. I've done something so terrible. I don't even know if I can tell you about it. As the group offered their support and encouragement, Reed broke through his fear and shame and began to open up. Last week I got reprimanded by my boss, and then I got into a fight with my wife. I was so depressed that I went out and bought a fifth of vodka and got drunk. I've been on a binge ever since, and I just can't make myself stop. Tears were running down Reed's face as the shame of his addiction to alcohol 
raised his ugly head once again. He had been clean and sober since joining the group six months earlier. He was active in Alcoholics Anonymous, but had experienced a number of slips and relapses in his 12 years of recovery. A group member handed him a box of tissues and Reed wiped his eyes. He then continued telling his story and revealing his shame in between sobs. I'm back to all my old ways of lying and manipulating. I'm totally out of control. I asked if he'd called his sponsor or gone to a meeting since this began. He shook his head and shared that he had slipped so many times that he didn't think anyone could care or want him back. Various members of the group shared with Reed that they didn't think he was bad, nor did they judge him. They could see that he was hurting. They told him that they had great respect that he'd come into group and revealed what was going on, especially since he had so much shame about it. After a few moments, Reed revealed, That's not all. There's more. He began to sob once again, lifting his hand to his forehead as he shook his head as in disgust of himself. It gets worse. I went to the peep shows near my work two times this week. He turned his eyes to the floor and wept almost uncontrollably. I had been doing so good, he choked out between sobs. Now I've blown it all. I feel totally worthless and don't want to go on living. I've made a mess of everything. For the rest of the hour, the group supported Reed and encouraged him to go all the way through his shame. They reassured him that he wasn't bad and that no one judged him. To the contrary, everyone respected him for revealing his shame and pain. They supported him in talking to his wife, calling his sponsor, and going to a meeting. They asked him to call one group member each day during the next week and let them know how he was doing. When Reed left the group that night, he was obviously shaken and scared. He had also released a heavy burden and received the support of a group of people who genuinely cared about him and wanted him to be okay. No matter how deeply Reed feared that his badness would cause people to judge him and abandon him, neither of these things happened. Instead, he received the message that there was nothing he could do that would make the men in the group stop liking him or stop caring about him. Breaking Free Activity number 11. Plan a weekend trip to the mountains or beach. If possible, plan a vacation or retreat for a week or longer by yourself to a place where no one knows you. Visit a foreign country by yourself if at all possible. Use this time as an opportunity for self-observation and reflection. Keep a journal. Practice good self-care. Take along this book and spend time doing the breaking free exercises. When you return home, observe how you are different and how long it takes for you to begin returning to familiar patterns. Shedding Old Skin As recovering nice guys release their toxic shame and start seeking their own approval, they begin to realize several important truths. They are not bad. They don't have to do anything to win other people's approval. They don't have to hide their perceived flaws or mistakes. People can love them just as they are.
As recovering nice guys begin to apply the principles described in this chapter, they can embrace the reality that they are human. Like every other human, nice guys make mistakes, use poor judgment, and act inappropriately. Nevertheless, their humanity doesn't make them bad or unlovable, nor does it cause other people to stop loving them. Imperfect humans can only connect with other imperfect humans. Most folks tend to be attracted to individuals who have some substance and sense of self. Chameleons usually don't draw much of a crowd or get many ovations. By shedding their chameleon skin and learning to please themselves, recovering nice guys begin to experience the intimacy and connection they have always desired. By learning to approve of themselves, they begin to radiate a life energy and charisma that draws people to them. As nice guys stop seeking approval and stop trying to hide their perceived flaws, they open a door to start getting what they really want in love and life. Chapter 4 Make Your Needs a Priority I want you to know that I'm really uncomfortable with that thing we talked about last week. Lars, an anxiety-filled executive, began his second session of counseling with this statement. Lars had come to see me on the encouragement of his wife. He reported being generally depressed and unhappy for as long as he could remember. In recent months, he had found it difficult to sleep at night and was experiencing migraine headaches on a regular basis. Even though everything in his life seemed to be fine, good job, nice home, family, etc., he never seemed to be happy. In his first counseling session, Lars revealed that he had constant fantasies of chucking it all and disappearing to somewhere else in the world. These thoughts made him feel guilty, so he kept them to himself. In that session, I asked Lars what he did for himself. He gave me a puzzled look. What do you mean, he asked. I repeated the question. After a pause, he answered, uh, Not much, I guess. For the rest of the session, I shared with him the importance of making his needs a priority and taking responsibility for finding ways to meet them. This discussion was met with both fear and resistance from Lars. The same hesitancy was repeated as he began his second counseling session. Which part of our discussion last week made you uncomfortable, I asked. All of it, he responded. That part about making my needs a priority really made me uptight. I asked him what part about taking responsibility for his needs made him anxious. Everything, he responded. That seems like that would make me selfish and self-centered. What's wrong with that, I asked. Lars looked at me with amazement. What's wrong with that, he replied, is that being selfish would make me too much like my old man. All he ever thought about was himself, and the rest of us suffered as a result. I just couldn't do that. I couldn't be a self-centered SOB like him. I've got a wife, 
kids, a job, a mortgage, and bills to pay. There's no room for me to start behaving like my father. Low-maintenance kinds of guys. Lars is a fairly typical nice guy when it comes to his needs. Nice guys generally focus their attention on meeting everyone else's needs while trying to be low-maintenance kind of guys themselves. When I talk with them about making their needs a priority, their responses are similar to that of Lars. This ubiquitous pattern among nice guys is the result of childhood conditioning. When a child's needs are not met in a timely, healthy manner, the child may come to believe that he is bad for having needs. He may also think that